This podcast is part of the Paris Fintech Forum Communities Programme and is brought to you with the support of BPI France. You're listening to the Fintech Podcast, the show that goes deep into the stories, the successes and failures that went into creating some of the world's most fantastic fintechs. Gotkin, and in this episode, Divido founder Krista Holloman on why being gay doesn't necessarily make for more diverse leadership. I'm raised by a single mother in northern Sweden, and, and so for me, gender diversity and, and equality has kind of been a, a given from, from day one. Uh, and then when I came to the UK, started my company, and just sort of being busy building the company, um, I didn't really think much about it. And then one day I took a good hard look at my leadership team and, you know, two middle-aged white straight men was looking back at me and I realized, hang on a second, where did I go wrong along the way here? Krista Holloman, founder and CEO of Divido. Thanks so much for joining me on the FNTech podcast. Thanks for having me, Elliot. So, um, so Divido, it's, it's like a white-labeled buy now, pay later platform for retailers. Is that the kind of uh, summary? Yeah, so Divido is an end-to-end loan origination platform that provides uh, buy now, pay later services to end consumers. And we sell it to, to either retailers or to banks. So uh, half of our clients are retailers that uh, want to offer this service and half of our client base are banks that want to offer this as a, a feature to their retailers and ultimately to those end consumers. And and are you just kind of, you're lending the money yourself from your own balance sheet when it's just with you? And um, when it's from the banks, it's from their balance sheet? How, how does it actually work in, you know, behind the scenes? So we are just doing the software. So again, the loan origination piece, and then the, the balance of the credit is provided by someone's balance sheet. In most cases, it's a, it's a bank, a retail bank. Okay. Uh, but you would kind of sell that on automatically, or you have people kind of bidding for certain, uh, certain clientele, certain retailers or things like that? No. So if a bank comes to us to license our software, it's their balance sheet. They are underwriting the consumers and therefore they own the debt. And I mean, I guess it's up to them what they do with it afterwards, but most of them will uh, invite the consumers to pay that back. And that's just their business model, right? To lend money and to, to recover that debt. And similarly with the retailers, Often they have pre-existing relationships with with retail banks, and, and that they are leveraging they're leveraging their balance sheet to do the exact same thing. So yeah, it's always uh, someone else's balance sheet, and it's always up to them how they kind of uh, recover that, if you will. And what kind of traction or, or growth have you seen? Have you seen the kind of uh, you know COVID boom that uh, so many other uh, fintechs have seen? Yeah, we definitely, COVID has been beneficial in, in the sense that it has driven people to buy more online. And also in times of economic uncertainty, we kind of know in general that people tend to look to credit as a way to spread the cost or defer the cost or, you know, manage their own outgoings more effectively. So there's been a huge uptake in uh, buy now, pay later across the industry uh, during COVID. But, you know, we are a seven-year-old company and we've been going from strength to strength every year. In the last four years, we've seen over 1,250% growth. We were named one of the fastest growing tech companies in the UK by Deloitte just last year. I think we're the 38th fastest growing tech company. Uh, But uh, can you quantify the kind of the additional uh, pace of growth that you experienced over the last 12 to 18 months? Yeah, so last year we had 135% growth. Okay. 
And uh, I mean, as you say, you know, you're not the only ones in this uh, space, although perhaps you're one of the most uh, venerable ones. Uh, you know, there are others, perhaps even uh, arguably better known, such as Klarna or uh, Afterpay. Uh, why would a retailer sign up with you as opposed to Klarna or Afterpay or any of the other uh, fintechs offering buy now, pay later services? So a key point of difference is that we are the software, we are the enabler effectively. And when a retailer comes to us, they're licensing a, a loan origination software, which allows them to plug into multiple credit providers. So if they were to choose Klarna or choose Afterpay or PayPal credit, they are beholden to their tech stack, they're beholden to their customer journey or user experience, and they're beholden to their lending criteria and their customer service that they provide. Whereas when they come to Divido, they license the technology to enable them to choose multiple providers, connect multiple lenders, play them off against each other. They can own the customer data, own the customer journey, and ultimately remain in control of that user experience uh, and the credit provisioning. So, for example, if one bank says no to a consumer, they, through Divido, they can then direct that application to a second provider. And, and in doing so, increase the overall accept rate. And by having the lenders compete um, in, on their own kind of um, panel, if you will, they're keeping the lenders honest about the prices they charge, about the approval rates, about the decline rates, about the customer service and so on. Um, so that's the key benefit from a retail perspective. And, and clearly, well, as I mentioned, we have two clients, is the retailers and there's also the, the banks, the retail banks, the incumbent banks. They obviously can't partner with a Klarna or partner with a PayPal credit because they are effectively competitors. They're both lenders. They both have a balance sheet. They both make money by lending money. So for the banks, they either have to build it something in-house or they come to us because we have something out of the box, off the shelf that allows them to go head to head with these new fintech challenger, buy now, pay later lenders without having to build or maintain the, the tech stack. And this, uh, you know, ability to play, uh, you know, banks or lenders uh, off against each other or to accept or, or use different lending uh, criteria. Is this something that all kind of happens in real time, uh, you know, kind of in the background or it's something that has to kind of be it's kind of like preset that Bank X will automatically, you know, lend on these criteria and Bank Y will automatically do it on those criteria at this rate. How does it all what's the what's the magic behind the scenes? So when a, a retailer comes to us, they choose how many lenders they would like to have, and they use our platform to configure how those lenders should work. So to your point, in some cases, retailers have contractual commitments to send all application to lender A. And only if lender A says, says no, they have the ability to defer that to lender B. But in other cases, retailers negotiate that they send 50-50 to two different providers. And only if one of them declines, they'll send it to the other. So it's completely within the lender's power to configure our platform in such a way that they get the customer flow or the application flow that they that they like. And of course, there's been a huge amount, not just a, we've not just seen huge growth in buy now, pay later services. Uh, we've also seen uh, huge amounts of funds being raised as well, uh, Klarna most notably. Uh, you recently raised $30 million, taking, I think, your total funds raised to $50 million. What's the money for? So the main purpose, I mean, the boring answer, I guess, is more of the same. So we are lucky in the sense that seven years ago, we defined our vision to become the world's leading white label platform for retail finance. And that vision is still very much the focal point of our day-to-day -day business. And we haven't finished the job. We're still very much uh, on, on our journey. We're now live in 10 countries. We service over a thousand customers. 
we work with some amazing brands like HSBC and BMW. And uh, yeah, we're, we're on a roll. We, we're, we're, we kind of identify product market fit and it's more the same. So what we're going to be doing with the money is to hire more people, is to onboard more clients, is to make sure the clients we have are performing better and doing well. It's adding new markets. It's about uh, being better at what we, perfecting what we've always been working on it. And, you know, by now, pay later, is that just the kind of first product, if you like? Is that is that the main thing? Is that what you're always planning to be? Or eventually, you know, once you've, uh, I don't know, completed your uh, global expansion, you're going to start kind of rolling out additional lending products or additional white label services for, for your clients? So the buy now, pay later industry is a $2.5 trillion industry. And that's obviously humongous. And we are very much just in the beginning of our journey. So we feel that there's no point for us to look anywhere else until we uh, we have kind of finished a job on, on, on retail finance. And, the, and there's so much left to do. So the, so, the, so the focus will remain on retail finance or or buy now, pay later. We, we won't deviate from that focus. And we mentioned the funds raised. It's not just obviously um, what you raise, but also who you raise it from in many circumstances. And you've got quite the, the roster of investors with HSBC, ING, Sony, among them how do you as a as a founder as the the ceo of, of the company how do you open the doors to such venerable names is it just the same as knocking on the door of some lesser known investment uh, firm or or or, lend, or 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 investor or vc or something and it's just harder to get that particular door opened is it just using your network how do you how do you get the kind of a-list investors of the sort that you've got so our experience is that we approach these companies thinking we can work commercially together. And later, further down the line, the opportunity to also become an investor is sort of a conversation that sometimes they bring up and sometimes we bring up. So you're, so the reason we were able to welcome ING and HSBC on board as investors, for example, is that we are well underway in, in our, our partnership, our commercial partnership with both of them. And similarly, in our Series A round, we were able to welcome both MasterCard and American Express on board as corporate uh, VCs. And, and similarly, we also had commercial partnerships with them. So I think that is sort of the the trick to get in in bed, if you if you if you wish, with the with those types of businesses. They they need to see that commercial side of it. Um, to and, and the investment is sort of a cherry on on top, really, rather than being the the starting point. And with the likes of, of Sony, you know, they are professional investors. They are uh, interested in meeting and being approached by companies that operate in their space or in the, within their thesis. So, yeah, that's what's just a matter of knocking on doors. And in terms of, I mean, you talked about some of the growth that you had. I think you said more than a, like a 1,200% over the last four years. I think you said that you've experienced. Can you give us a sense of where you are in terms of revenue, in terms of path to profitability and the like? So we can't uh, discuss uh, revenue, um, but as a high growth tech companies, our investors are giving us money so that we can grow even faster. So the focus is not revenue or the goal, oh, sorry, the focus is not break even or profitability. The focus is very much on growth. And, and the fact that not are we only able to bring on new investors, the fact that we're getting our existing investors to invest again and again, like IQ Capital, like DM and uh, Dawn Capital. It's a testament that we are doing all the right things uh, and that profitability is, is sort of uh, not, it's not been the primary focus, but growth is. And, and that's what we're doing really well. And uh, when you see the kind of valuations for, you know, someone like Klarna, I think it was what, in excess of, uh, what was it, uh, 30 billion or something? Um, 
does that uh, does that reflect? Uh, is that a good indication of where your valuation's heading? Yeah, we are, unfortunately we're not at that uh, level right now. I mean, you have to remember as well they've been around for 15, 16 years. They are balance sheet lenders, a very different business model, very different valuation. Uh, models applied to their business uh, as a software company effectively earning a transaction fee a monthly license fee is a, is a different business uh, altogether but but it's certainly a good thing and usually what's good for Klarna is usually good for us because it brings focus to the industry it shows that this is becoming not a nice to have feature as a retailer it's, it's going to be a hygiene increasingly becoming a hygiene factor when it comes to offering this as a payment option at checkout. So uh, Klarna is spending billions on educating consumers, educating retailers, and that's good for us because we can then swoop in afterwards and say, hey, now that you know everything about retail finance, now let's look at what options you have to optimize your program. Should you really want to only want to work with one lender or do you want to have multiple lenders? Well, in that case, we can help you. And similarly, the banks realize that every billion euros that Klarna is lending is one more billion euros that the banks are not lending. So the more noise they make, these players, the more interested the banks become in stepping into this space. So it's, it's all, all around. It's a really good thing for us. Okay. Now, now as well as, of course, founding and, and leading Divider, you're also a, a big supporter of diversity um, in fintechs. Uh, tell me how that came about. Well, I mean, I'm raised by a single mother in northern Sweden. And, and so for me, gender diversity and, and equality has kind of been a, a given from, from day one. Uh, and then when I came to the UK, started my company and just sort of being busy building the company, um, I didn't really think much about it. And then one day I took a good hard look at my leadership team and, you know, two middle-aged white straight men was looking back at me and I realized, hang on a second, where did I go wrong along the way here? And, and it kind of reminded me that we need to be a company that reflects uh, our society in which we operate, reflects the clients that we serve. Um, and I decided that it's not good enough to think that if because I'm uh, thinking diversity and equality that everything will just fall in place. I need to proactively do something about it. And as a CEO of a business, I think I also have not just a obligation to do it, but I also think I have some power to, to make change because I can set the agenda, I can set the tone, I can promote initiatives to make sure that this stays on, on, on our radar and becomes a focal point when we think right. about recruitment and, and culture and so on. And I think, unless I missed it, you, you didn't actually mention the fact that that you know you you came out as gay when you were a teenager, which which again isn't something that we are aware of is particularly common uh, in fintech. So I guess you perhaps thought, well, you know, I'm like quote unquote, you know, part of the diversity, uh, but at the same time, obviously there there are many uh, many ways to to go about this. Exactly, you're completely right. I think. Um sexuality or, or, or gender or religion isn't something that necessarily feature in, in our board meetings or in investor meetings. So it's something that kind of falls by the wayside a little bit. And, and yeah, you, of course, it's part of you know, society, it's part of our fabric. So we need to shine a spotlight on it and, and do something about um, making it more a, a, a more, more discussed topic, I guess. And I mean, if we can just perhaps go back in time, you, you, you mentioned it briefly, you were brought up by, uh, you know, uh, j just by your mother. Um, I mean, was it was it a tough uh, kind of upbringing in, in Sweden? Was it, uh, you know, did you want for kind of the sorts of things that, uh, you know, people growing up, uh, you know, perhaps uh, if their families are, you know, middle class and OK or off that they don't want for? 
Well, so I was one of four siblings, and and whilst we weren't like poor, poor, we're not living on the streets. You know, Sweden is still a kind of welfare state. Um, we didn't have a lot of uh, surplus cash. I remember I started working part time in the local grocery store when I was ten years old. I was pushing trolleys from the car park into the supermarket, and they paid me one pound per hour. And I remember it was twelve thirteen. My family went on my first holiday abroad, and my mom actually took my salary from my savings account to help pay towards the the family holiday. You know, my fair share, um, which you know at the time it sort of didn't. I didn't sort of think twice about it. But looking back, I, I realized yes, you know, times were tough in that sense, um, and that's also you know part of been shaping who I am and my motivations in life in general. Um, and, and I had a very happy childhood, you know, lots of love and, and happiness. Uh, so, you know, very grateful for all of that. But, uh, you know, the lack of, of money has certainly been like one characteristics uh, in, in that upbringing. And did that instill a kind of work ethic uh, in you as you were, you know, quite young, working hard uh, and then, you know, seeing that if you work hard and you earn money, you can actually do more things or have more things was that something that also impacted you in terms of your determination to succeed and to, to I guess work hard uh, to build the company that you're, you're you've built now yeah yeah absolutely it became kind of like a, a standard or a norm that you go to school and then you go to work and 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 obviously when I was very young the first couple of years I wasn't working very much it was a couple of hours every week in the grocery store but when I turned 16, I could start working at the checkout line and that became like a weekend job and it became more of a regular thing in that sense. But yeah, I think working is almost like my normal mode, if you will, um, and taking time off is sort of the exception. And I think also, you know, Sweden, as you say, was a welfare state is also very well known for its liberal values. But presumably when you, you know, came out as a, as a teen, um, there weren't that many other people doing the same thing in your in your town uh was that quite a an easy thing to do was it you know traumatic like dramatic tell us about that so i, I never really like came out to the wider public as, as such i did did tell my my mom and my my family well she was kind enough to inform the rest of my family uh, in a number of frantic phone calls that one afternoon but at least i got everything out in the open uh, very quickly so i didn't have to do it but yeah, it was very it was very undramatic in that sense. You know, my mom was sort of asking if she had done something wrong and she said it might be difficult to be gay and stuff like that. But but now, you know, fast forward, you know, we have to acknowledge the kind of generation she's from as well, how uncommon it was when she grew up and the fact that she doesn't know anyone that's gay apart from some uh, high-profile gay celebrity on TV, which is obviously very different from kind of the average normal person on the street. So she didn't have a great frame of reference, I suppose. So it, I had to kind of accept the fact that she also needs time. In the same way I've had to become comfortable with it when I was a teenager, you know, she's had to go on her own journey to become comfortable with it. And, and now, you know, all she wants for me is to be happy and to be settled and to have a family of my own and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, to answer your question, I didn't really come out to the whole world. I never had the need really to, to do that. Um, it's not something I lead in when I go into conversations or meeting new people. If it comes up, I obviously tell them. But if it doesn't come up, I mean, the fact that I'm gay doesn't define who I am and what I do. It just happens to be one facet, if you will, of, of my personality or, or, or who I am. So, yeah, it was very undramatic in, in that sense. And in your professional life, when you were going through your studies, I know obviously today it's it's not a, it, 
not 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 an issue, but it's not something even worth discussing a lot of the time because it's so uh, commonplace and everybody is obviously much more, uh, let's say, open-minded than um, than they were back when perhaps we were growing up, and and also in in certain uh, peripheral towns outside, you know, big cities. I'm just wondering, did you ever encounter any discrimination, any challenges, kind of along the way, or it just it, it was just in in a way that perhaps some uh, you know female entrepreneurs might have uh, encountered on the way uh, did you ever experience anything that uh, people trying to i don't know treat you differently or um, or perhaps uh, hold you back in a way that they perhaps wouldn't with uh, you know someone that was more like them quote unquote yeah i mean uh, to be honest I, I i guess i've been very fortunate in the sense that it's it's uh, it's not something that's come up in 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 professional work settings or in in vc meetings or anything like that um and it's it's not something that's held me back i mean the, the there's one instance in my entire life where I, I where i've been kind of harassed if you will for for being gay and it was uh in a weatherspoons in pool uh, when i was on holiday like 15 years ago with my partner at the time we were having lunch and we were holding hands under the table and some local kids saw that and they started making fun of us and then we were trying to ignore them. And then one of them came over and kind of pushed my shoulder so that they would get some sort of reaction. And, you know, at that point we kind of got up and left. But that was the one incident in my entire life that I can remember being gay kind of made people do something towards me or because of that. Um, so, yeah, so I guess, uh, you know, obviously there's some horror stories out there about how unfortunate some people have, have been. But from my personal perspective, uh, I think to your point, I think that's the positive side here, that the world is becoming more accepting. This is becoming more uh, more normal. And for that reason, there is less bullying or harassment and because of it. And I think we also know that the people that do do the bullying are the small people here. And as long as we can all kind of see that, uh, eventually, hopefully that should kind of go away. And, and we touched on the um, diversity issues uh, a few moments ago. I'm just wondering, you know, beyond your own company, which I think now your your uh, board is now kind of like half-half or your executive team is kind of, you know, half men, half women. Correct. Do you, do you notice things broadly across the industry that they are improving, that they are becoming more diverse, uh, that it's not just, you know, uh, white, uh, you know, white men in whether it's investors or whether it's as, as founders? And if that is changing, is it changing fast enough? Well, I think that uh, a lot of the unicorn fintechs of today, you know, they've been in the making for like 10 plus years, like Revolut or we talked about Klan already. And, and perhaps back then, um, diversity and inclusion wasn't really a, a topical um, thing. So, so and we see that reflected in their leadership teams today. I saw a, a diagram of the senior leadership team at Revolut and out of 20, 25 people, I think there were 24 men white middle-aged men. Uh, so the message hadn't, hadn't clearly reached them at the time. But that said, I know Revolut has also initiated a new project to put the spotlight on this issue. So there will be a delay. I think over the next five, 10 years, we will start to see a gradual shift uh, on the tech, on the, on the, on the t- technology or the startup side or, 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 or fintech side. Um, but what I'm seeing a little bit more traction or quicker traction is around the VC community. So there's a new VCs being launched that as their mission, they make a point that we invest in underrepresented founders. We invest in female-led companies. Um, I filled in surveys online where they when investors would ask, you know, how many members of your leadership team are, you know, filling these uh, diversity criteria and so on. So it's definitely something that they are monitoring. 
And also, I, I seem to sense that VCs are promoting female uh, colleagues uh, to a greater degree than I'd seen. Uh, the last five years, I've seen a greater degree of promotions happening compared to the, the five years preceding. So I think that there is a, a, a transitioning happening there. And I think that sets the tone because these are the VCs that will be investing in this new generation of, of fintechs or, or tech companies. Um, so I think we'll see a trickling effect uh, from, from that. Right, because I was going to ask you if, if the lack of diversity that we see is because it's just hard or if founders have just become, I don't know, not lazy, but just it's just not a top priority. Um, but but you, you seem to be suggesting that things are changing, but there is inevitably a lag with some of the fintechs that we kind of see, which are growing big now. You know, they've been going for a few years now. And so, you know, that's why, because back then when they started, this this wasn't something that was seen to be an issue. Correct. And last year, I launched an initiative called Fintech Finishers, which is the purpose of that is just to shine a spotlight on the lack for for or the the lack of diversity inclusion and the need for more diversity inclusion within fintech. And the way that we are doing that is by challenging fintech executives to take part in endurance races and raise money for charity. And each year we pick a charity that has a, a focus on increasing diversity and inclusion. For example, right now we are raising money for Coder Dojo, which is running coding schools for kids. And specifically, they have initiatives to help young girls and women get into coding because we know that it's when you get the 10, 15, 20-year-olds interested in coding, that they will go on to become developers. They will become interested in technology and in later life, whether they're 20 or 30, potentially start a company. And in doing that, we kind of create more of a pipeline, if you will, of backable uh, tech entrepreneurs that are not a white middle-aged man, effectively. Not that I'm against white middle-aged men, I guess, being one of them myself, but, uh, but you know, but we'll come back to, um, to your story in, in just a moment, Chris. I've just got to uh, remind our audience that uh, this podcast is part of the Paris Fintech Forum Communities Programme for 2021. And in this special pandemic period, uh, you can enjoy throughout the year top-level live sessions with key industry players, exclusive on-demand interviews such as this one, and use our innovative digital networking capabilities to meet your peers, develop your network, create new business opportunities, and continue to build together the future of the fin and tech industry and you can find out more at www.parisfintechforum.com um, now crystal we've talked a bit about other buy now pay later companies out there notably um klarna and we talked a bit about some of the valuations again klarna excess of 30 billion dollars at the uh, at the last count um what do you make of the valuations that are out there right now there seems to be a huge amount of money sloshing around and going towards fintechs uh, arguably i think according to some studies uh, even more so than other sectors is this all you know good value are, are valuations getting out of control uh, i guess you're quite happy with whatever valuation you've got now but taking perhaps the uh, you know 30,000 feet view from above do you see things perhaps getting a bit out of control I saw a report the other day from Stifted, the online publication, and they were saying that the number of seed investments is actually declining or the value and the volume is declining. Uh, at the same time, you see a tremendous uptick in big checks being written. And I think it's basically there's so many VCs looking to deploy so much money that the only way they can have time to do that is to write bigger and bigger checks. Um, and in order to do that, to justify that big check, they need to have a big high valuation. So it's almost like, I don't know, feeding frenzy. Uh, everyone's trying to outbid one another. Uh, and I think the, the valuations are indeed getting in crazy high. Now that said, 
I think what we're witnessing is a transition as well away from, uh, I mean, the only way consumers were able to access credit historically in retail has been through the plastic credit card from Visa or Amex or, or you know, your local bank, but, you know, through, the, through, through those um, networks. And today, consumers have more choice. I can see a steep decline in use of credit cards going forward. And this slack will be picked up by Buy Now, Pay Later and other instant credit provision providers. And uh, yeah, so I don't think that our space is overvalued, but I think others might be overvalued. <laughs> our space is just valued just right. Everybody else is overvalued. Okay, so uh, I guess we'll we'll kind of see. Um, I mean, I guess at some point, you know, we, we see valuations, we see the kind of euphoria uh, and then things can kind of, you know, change overnight as we've seen recently with Chinese uh, tech companies uh, or with, uh, you know, uh, perhaps uh, to a certain degree in the EV space. Uh, do you worry that there might be some kind of reckoning coming? I think what we have seen, because this sector has been so buoyant, there's been a lot of interest, a lot of uh, new startups, a lot of VC money going into it across all the stages of, of maturity. Um, and I don't think there's room for every single player. In the same same way, there's only Visa and MasterCard and, and maybe Amex. And obviously, there's a few others like Discovery in the US and so on. Um, but I think what we will see in our sector is a consolidation. And in fact, it's already began to some degree. So um, I think they're Australian or they might be New Zealand. Um, I should probably know this, but SIP is um, a buy now, pay later company. They are acquiring domestic players. And I think we'll start to see uh, more of that happening. It doesn't make sense that there are 100, 200 companies all over the world doing pretty much the same thing. And uh, Divider would be Predator or Prey? So Divido uh, is, it sits in a slightly different bucket in that we are the software, the enabler, if you will, that sit between the end users, the clients, and the balance sheet providers, these fintechs. And, and where the acquisition is happening or the um, consolidation is happening is very much around the independent small fintech challenger lenders with their own balance sheet trying to compete with Klarna, which is not going to be very successful so i think they will be acquired or or, or come on join forces and we we've always sat kind of in side to that um okay but but i mean in terms of the space there are concerns uh for want of a better phrase of perhaps the, the kind of wongification of uh, of unsecured um lending such as this uh concerns that people maybe are borrowing money that they won't be able to afford to pay back um, perhaps there will be issues with bad loans especially when players get so huge that their balance sheets you know start um, you know providing uh, start becoming uh, I guess dangerous for for the people that they're borrowing their money from um, what's your take on this is uh, is everyone lending responsibly and uh, everyone's happy and bad loans not rising because they're doing such great due diligence on the people that they're lending the money to now, I think this is part of the problem because the industry has grown so fast and it's like a, a dog-eat-dog world among those new fintech lender challenges. Uh, the only way to grow faster than your competitors is if you lend more. And how are you going to lend more is only if you kind of lend more generously or kind of overlook things. Uh, and that's really now come and, and sort of uh, uh, challenge the industry because the FCA here in the UK and other regulators are looking at potentially having to regulate this sector for example, just making sure that lenders uh, are doing affordability checks and make sure that people are able to take on more debts and, and so on. Um, so I think that's definitely something that's fallen by the wayside in the name of growth for the sake of growth. 
fortunately for Divido, we work with established domestic retail banks that have been operating for some of them 50, 100, 200 years, and they already do regulated consumer credit. That's sort of very much core of their business model. So for them, uh, entering by now pay later is just more of the same. For them, it changes nothing. Um, and if, indeed, if anything, it just levels the playing field. For the first time, fintech challenger lenders in this sector needs to behave in an equally responsible way as the banks always have been uh, behaving. So yeah, so if, if by now pay later providers uh, can't live up to that, yeah, they'll probably go the, the destiny of Wonga and, and become much smaller. But of course, we have seen in the past that uh, even established banks have uh, been known to uh, do things that uh, they shouldn't have been doing, whether it's, um, you know, mis-selling of payment protection loans or whether it's, uh, you know, pension scandals or, you know, th- there are situations where banks have been found to have um, misbehaved, let's say, and have had to pay back, you know, large amounts in, in compensation. Uh, do you get a sense that the regulator is likely to come in and, you know, whether it is the fintechs that are lending off their own balance sheet or whether it's your, you know, clients, uh, retail banks that are lending from their balance sheets that they could, you know, put a lid on some of the growth that this sector has been experiencing of late? So I think the good news for the retail banks is that most of them are not active in buy now, pay later or in retail finance. So for them, entering the sector now, which is what we're helping them do, everything will be upside. They can only grow from here, the, you know, from a, from a standing start. So if there's going to be a tapering of volumes or transaction volumes, it's going to come from the long tail of, of fintech challenger lenders that have been, you know, fending their way forward in the last couple of years, growing to where the, the size where they are today. So I think if anything, they will kind of come down in volume and eventually go out of business or again, be acquired by a, a partner or another business in the sector. Um, so, yeah, so I don't think that uh, that's uh, going to change much for our clients. Again, they welcome the fact that the playing field is now leveled. And to your earlier point about banks being misbehaving in the past, I think banks have learned the hard way. What they could get away with before, they know that they will not get away a second time or a third time. And their reputation is too valuable to to, to risk it for, for the sake of uh, just one launching one product and, and earning whatever a couple of million a couple of billions on that product so yeah no I, I remember a meeting with one of the biggest retail banks here in the uk and he said he employs as many people in the commercial team as he does in the risk and compliance team and the reason they do that is because they're so scared of getting it wrong uh, you just don't get fintech lenders talking like that or investing in risk and compliance in that way to that level of degree. So I'm very bullish and very confident about the ethics and the morals of our institutional retail banks. Uh, but at some point, you know, inevitably when, you know, right now, I guess it, it's boom times as uh, economies, especially uh, richer economies are recovering from the uh, COVID pandemic. Uh, at some point that's going to change. Uh, but where are we in terms of, of the um, loans that maybe are going bad in terms of these uh, uh, of the lenders in the buy now pay later space is everything kind of you know like under control barely barely registering in terms of uh, people's inability to pay so i think we will start to see more defaults from the loans issued by the long tail of fintech balance sheet lenders 
because again, they've been lending just because they wanted to grow, uh, kind of overlooking potentially consumers' ability to repay or previous credit history. But uh, what I'd like to think or what, I, what I'm what i seeing is that the retail banks that we work with, again, they've been in business for 50, 100 years. They've seen multiple um, uh, recessions. They know better than to lend money to people that are unable or will not be able to repay at a later date. So they are already on top of reducing the accept rate to kind of limit the impact or potential um, defaults further down the line. So they're being very moderate about this. And uh, you're in London, obviously, uh, which is where uh, Divido is based, uh, but you're expanding across many other countries. Did, did, did Brexit affect you at all? Do you, do you think that if, uh, if you'd known that it was going to happen, that you would have uh, founded your fintech in the UK uh, anyway, or perhaps uh, somewhere else would have been a, a more sensible place to go, knowing what you know now? So for us, it's not had an impact. So we work with British retail banks in the UK to lend money through British retailers to British consumers. And similarly, in Germany, we work with German banks, German retailers and German consumers. So they're kind of like isolated islands, if you will, from an operational perspective. So it's not added uh, any significant overhead or, or administrative burden as such. Uh, I think I've suffered the Brexit on a personal level more, you know, ordering things online and having issues with with customs. Um, but yeah, from a business perspective, uh, we are very happy to be based here in the UK. It's obviously financial hub of Europe, amazing as, access to talent here, access to investors and so on. So yeah, we wouldn't have made any any different choices. And you're like a naturalized Brit now, are you? Or you still have to kind of queue up separately coming from... Uh from sweden i now have a british citizenship so uh, i have two passports i can flip a coin great well welcome to the club uh look uh, uh chris just just one final question uh before we go and this is something i put to all the uh, founders that we have on the fintech podcast uh, and that is this uh, what is the weirdest or craziest thing you've ever built or done in your life the weirdest thing i've ever done or craziest thing well, uh, start of last year, I decided, you know, I was, I, I was turning 40 last year and uh, I decided that I've been putting on some weight and I need to get out more. I need to challenge myself. And I've done some triathlons in the past when I was younger. And I thought, you know, how can I top that? And I decided to sign up to do an Ironman. Uh, so Ironman is, is a triathlon, but it's uh, kind of longer distances. You swim for 3.9K, then you bike for 180K, and then you run a marathon, 42K you have 17 hours to to complete it. So I signed up to do that uh, last year and I started practicing for it or training for it. And due to lockdown in November when I was going to do it, it got postponed to this November. So I had to could carry on for another year. But I think that's probably the, the single most crazy thing that I've uh, signed up to. I say, so you'll be doing it this November? Correct, yes. Okay, so I guess just as well, we're, we're speaking now before you... Uh... <laughs> before you are on your uh, recovery period. I think I'm still suffering from the London Marathon that I did in 2002. But, uh, <laughs> anyway, well, look, uh, Chris, it's been great chatting to you to get a sense of, uh, of Divido and also uh, your story and how you got here uh, today. Um, so really want to thank you, Krista Holloman, uh, founder and CEO of Divido. Thanks so much for joining me on the FNTech podcast. Thanks for having me. All right. Wish you well. Take care. 
And since we recorded this podcast, Klarna's valuation has surged to more than $45 billion, and Krista has stepped down as CEO of Divido. He'll stay involved as a founder and advisor and spend more time, among other things, promoting FinTech Finishers. That's his charitable initiative for more diversity and inclusion in FinTech. I guess he'll also have more time to train for that Ironman. So thank you, Krista Holloman, and thank you for listening to the FinTech podcast with me, Elliot Gotkin, now part of the Paris FinTech Forum Communities Programme. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get updates and listen to all previous episodes via the website, www.parisfintechforum.com. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can find us on LinkedIn and on Twitter at ParisFinForum or at Elliot Gotkin. That's it from me. Thanks again to BPI France for sponsoring this podcast. We'll be back again next week for more of the best F in tech. Hope you'll join us again then. Bye-bye.